Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, March 3rd, 2014. So did any of you go watch the Son of God movie? (laughs) If you did, I'm sure you were disappointed. And like I said, they took four hours from the... uh, television series The Bobble and squished it into two and called it a movie. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, or movies created in the name of God and you know, to the Word of God. And ugh. Anyway, <clears throat> we will be talking a little bit about the, uh, the Son of God movie, and I will be using a uh, recent... Review posted over at the Christian Post. That's right. There's a uh, at the Christian Post. They have some people who uh, are able to blog there, and uh, there is a gentleman. Uh, I don't know if it's a gentleman or a gal. It's Sunny Shell. Is is uh, is the name of the reviewer? And gotta say, I don't know who Sunny Shell is. And uh, so Sunny Shell is the author, and uh, the name of the review is Son of God is most certainly not. The Son of God. And as we go through this, um, all of the things that we covered last year in the History Channel miniseries, The Bobble, uh, gets uh, brought up in uh, this review. And it, again, it's just, it's just a rehash. It's it's not even the biblical Jesus we're dealing with. We're dealing with something else. So we're, we're going to be talking about that a little bit today. In fact, today's you know it's, we're going to be all over the map is what it's going to feel like for you. Um, and oddly enough, there actually is a theme to this, which is bizarre. Um, good luck on trying to figure it out because it took me a while to actually piece it together. So I, I can't deconstruct it even at the moment to, you know, to hint at what it's going to be. But if you're, those of you astute listeners will figure out what's going on. But uh, so we've got the review of the Son of God movie we're going to take a look at. Um, have any of you all heard of Ronnie Floyd? Yeah. Does that name sound familiar to you? Ronnie Floyd? Well, uh, Ronnie Floyd apparently um, is considered to be the heir apparent, the guy who's going to be the next um, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he was nominated for the presidency of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention by none other than Al Mohler. And, uh, of course, 
My question is, you know, after doing a little bit of research on this guy, why is Al Mohler nominating Ronnie Floyd to be the president of the SBC? Because uh, Ronnie Floyd, as you're, you're, you will hear today, um, is one of these guys who actually buys into Robert Morris's false teaching uh, from the book The Blessed Life that your money's cursed until you tithe. So, yeah, I'm <laughs> just like... Uh, Al, um, you know, any particular reason why you nominated Ronnie Floyd to be the next president of the SBC? Was this some kind of rope-a-dope strategy? I'm just a little, um, confused by the, the tactics there. So we, we got a Ronnie Floyd update, first ever Ronnie Floyd update, and by the looks of it, um, it won't be our last, and that's rather discouraging and disappointing. And then what we'll do is we'll switch gears. We have a uh, David Crank update. Um, and then uh, time permitting, we also have a Joyce Meyer update all in the first hour. So we got a lot, of, lot to do in the first hour. And then in hour number two, we will be uh, redoing a, a, a Dan, uh, not Danny, uh, Brian Zond, a Brian Zond sermon review. And uh, he's going to be uh, trafficking in the categories of true self versus False self, true self versus false self, which um, ironically are not categories that are biblical. Um, these are categories that I often hear from mystics. And uh, so we'll be reviewing a sermon today from Brian Zahn where he talks about this true self, false self dichotomy. Of course, the major question is, really, where did he get this from the Bible? Because the Bible doesn't teach it. So it seems like we're just going to just get into it and we get just got to go. Well, that's what we got to do today. I mean, it's Monday. You know, you got you got to dive in, get get busy, get to work. And <laughs> you know, I'm no different. I, I, I got to work just like the, uh, the rest of you. So uh, we're going to dive right into it. Uh, we've got lots and lots of ground to cover. And since we're starting with a, a blog post regarding the, the, uh, the History Channel, not the History Channel, but the Son of God movie, and technically it's not the same, you know, it, it's, uh, anyway, since I'm reading a blog post, I'm going to do this music. Yeah. From the Christian Post blogs, a blog post by uh, Sonny Shell, uh, it's a movie review, Son of God is most certainly not the Son of God. And nothing in here is surprising. Nothing in here wasn't already featured in the History Channel miniseries The Bobble. But um, if you're wondering, hey, you know, was that movie going to be any better than uh, the, the miniseries? The answer is no, it's the same it's the same Jesus. It's Vidal Sassoon Jesus, uh, who is a purpose-driven mystic type who's out to change the world. And, uh, of course, Roma Downey and Mark Burnett have, uh, you know, they found no reason uh, whatsoever uh, to not twist the story of Jesus and, and make a Jesus into their own image. That's basically what they did. So Sonny Shell writes, uh, today, and actually this was last Friday, uh, a, The Son of God, a new movie produced by Roma Downing and her husband Mark Burnett, opened in theaters across the country. Individual Christians and well-known Christian church, uh, churches, organizations, and even schools are raving about seeing Jesus on the big screen. Uh, but they didn't. Many Christian groups bought out multiple screens at theaters or purchased mass quantities of group tip tickets for this epic film or rather epic fail of the true and biblical story of Jesus 
the Son of God. Last year, I was contacted by a media group for the History Channel. They emailed me requesting my help in promoting their upcoming 10-episode miniseries called The Bible. After reviewing their material, uh, Bible studies based on the series and clips of every episode, I responded kindly, telling them that due to the unbiblical nature of the series, I was unable to help promote it. After watching the entire miniseries, I wrote and published my review and haven't heard from them since. Prior to entering the theater today, I went in with an open Bible mind. Uh-huh, that's a good way of looking at it. And open spirit heart. I hope that this movie was better than the miniseries, but alas, it was not. The majority of this film was simply scenes taken from the heretical and blasphemous miniseries. Please know I don't take those ter- two terms lightly, and neither should any professing Christian. Now, I won't go uh, point by point on all the biblical errors in this movie because honestly, there are just not enough. There's not just a, there's just not enough room in one review nor time in one day to cover the ineptness of the writers and the producers of this film. Keep in mind. <laughs> Talk about ineptness of the writers and producers of the film. Theological advisors for this film included uh, Rick Warren, T.D. Jakes, Joel Osteen. That should tell you something about what we're, we could expect here, right? So I will. So uh, the study shell continues. I will only cover some of the topics and scenes that are fundamental to God's holy precepts and His loving relationship with His people, which includes one authority, two righteousness, three love. As a movie, it was gripping, emotionally engaging, well performed, and the cinematography was good. I'm not an emotional person, but even I found myself tearing up when Matthew was called away from his tax collecting table to follow. Jesus. Unfortunately, the way the scene is portrayed, as many others, is not actually how God inspired it to be written in his word. And I would even say how it happened historically, okay, because we're dealing with historical narrative in the Gospels. So um, the first topic, Peter asks, uh, sorry, Jesus asks Peter to go fishing. When Jesus comes to the Sea of Galilee, rather than call his first four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, he only calls one disciple, Peter. But rather than call Peter and Andrew from their boat while they were fishing, Jesus, please, Peter, just give me an hour and I'll give you a whole new life. After sassing Jesus, Peter takes him fishing, where Jesus works a miracle and provides him with an abundance of fish. When Peter asks what they are going to do, Jesus says, change the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the same tripe that we saw last year in the miniseries The Bobble. In the real Bible, Jesus doesn't beg anyone to spend time with them. After all, he is the Lord and has all authority to command who he wants and what he wants. Therefore, he commands Peter and Andrew to follow him, and they immediately leave their boat and nets and obey Jesus' command, just as all the apostles who were commissioned by Christ to go into all the world and make disciples. That is, learners, he didn't tell anyone that he came to change the world, nor did he ask for their help to do so. Christ came into the world to save sinners from the righteous wrath of God, which is just which is the just penalty for our sins. He never said he came to change the world. He said he came to transform people by giving them new hearts, new minds through repentance and faith in Christ alone. Next topic, the 13th disciple. Mm-hmm. There's 13 disciples in the uh, um, Son of God movie. And um, By the way, last year we noted this, that there was a 13th disciple, and the 13th disciple is a chick. It's, yeah, a woman. And last year I I named her Regina, 
Uh huh. You know, because I'm, she's not, she's nowhere in the uh, in the uh, the gospel accounts. So you know, we had to come up with a name to you know, to refer to her. But after uh, having caught, thought it through for the past year, uh, I've decided that referring to her as Regina is too kind. And so um, I've renamed the uh, the thirteenth disciple in the uh, the Son of God movie. And her name now is uh, Jezebel. Jezebel, that's her name. And that sounds a lot like Jezebel. That's because uh, Jezebel is actually the name Jezebel. You just need, if you read Hebrew, you can see these things. So um, that's what I've named her. So the thirteenth disciple is Jezebel, and it's a she. And uh, let me read what Sonny Shell writes about her. Yes, you read that right. I know the scri- that in the scriptures there's only 12 disciples, all men, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. But in the film, The Son of God, there are 13 disciples. And the 13th disciple is a woman named <clears> – <throat> I'm going to – technically they refer to her as Mary, but again, her real name is Jezebel. Now, not only is she always with them, but she's with them in the boat during the storm when Jesus walks on the water. She's with them when they travel privately. Uh, you know, though in the scriptures, Jesus pulled aside and taught only the 12, the men. That's right. And this, this is kind of an interesting parallel here. How many, tw- how many tribes of Israel were there? There were 12 tribes of Israel. So you see the 12-12 thing going on here? There's a reason for this. <clears throat> we should get William Tapley on the on the on the story. See if he can figure out why why there's a thirteenth disciple. But anyway, Jezebel is also very outspoken and often reproves the male disciples to have more faith, as it is very apparent that her faith is stronger than theirs. Uh, during the crucifixion scene, when Jesus is being jeered at by the crowd, Jezebel defends Jesus and shouts, "Leave him alone!" Wow, brave gal, huh? Braver than the male disciples who never speak up or do anything heroic or faithful. And then when Jesus is resurrected, she's the first and the only woman to enter the empty tomb. She also accompanies Peter and John, who later come to the empty tomb to see for themselves. And in the scripture, three women three women actually go to the uh, tomb early in the morning and are greeted by the angels who remind them that Jesus said he would rise on the third day. In the movie, then she and the disciples remember all this on their own, huh? Yeah, Lazarus rises with more than a command. We covered this last year as well. In Scripture, Jesus purposefully delays uh, from going to see Lazarus when he was ill, allowing him to die, and then he purposefully goes to see Lazarus after he's been dead for four days. When Jesus arrives, he is greeted by Martha, one of Lazarus' sisters, who says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha confesses that Jesus is the Christ and that she believes that she will see her brother on the last day of the uh, the resurrection. Then Jesus tells her that he is the resurrection and the life. And shortly after telling her this, he, as he comes to the tomb, he weeps. And uh, then from outside the tomb, the Lord Jesus commanded Lazarus come out with his face wrapped in a cloth and the rest of his body wrapped in linen strips. Lazarus obeys Christ and comes out of the tomb. This is how it occurs in the biblical text. Uh, But that's not how it happens in the Son of God movie. In the Son of God movie, they have an unbiblical portrayal of the true Son of God uh, while the fake Jesus and his disciples are walking through a crowd. Mary, I'm sorry, Jezebel, the 13th disciple, just happens to see Martha weeping and ask her what's wrong. When Martha says that Lazarus had died, Jesus is surprised. 
which he often is throughout this film, and asked to be taken to the tomb. Once Jesus arrives at the tomb, he actually goes in with uh, Martha and then touches Lazarus, whose face is not wrapped, gently cradles his head, weeps, kisses, and and kisses the back of Lazarus's head, uh, quotes some scripture and gently suggests that Lazarus arise, and he does. Martha and Lazarus embrace, and the three of them emerge from the tomb as the crowd cheers. Uh, this scene was performed more like uh, football players exiting a tunnel and onto their home field than truly the majestic and awesome scene that is depicted in scripture. Uh huh. <laughs> this scene, along with the entire movie, was bankrupt of Jesus's power and authority over death and life. And by the way, the, the author, Sonny, uh, Sonny Shell here, goes on to recount a whole bunch of other things that are completely off, including what, they, uh, uh, what Sonny refers to as the great, ha- you know, the great Commission has a great omission. Huh? This is toward the, uh, the end of the review. Um, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20 reads, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus Christ, is essentially John three sixteen through 20. Uh, this passage proclaims why Christ came into the world, to save sinners from the full pen- penalty of our sins, which is why the good news is the greatest news and human, uh, any human being can receive. For there is only one mediator between man and God uh, Almighty, and that's Christ the Lord, the only Son of God. However, in the movie, uh, The Son of God, Jesus never mentions, not even in footnotes, uh, the just penalty of sin, or that we need to be made into new creations through repentance and faith in Christ, which alone equips us to go forth into all the world and make disciples, not converts to a new way, a better world, or just a happier and more peaceful life. There's all kinds of stuff missing from the, uh, from the movie. So the conclusion is this. This is what the you know the Sunny uh, Shell offers as the conclusion to the review. If someone called you to called to you, suggesting that you come out of your comfortable home to take up a more comfortable and elegant home, you may think they're nice. Uh, but you wouldn't consider this to be great news or even an impossibly generous gift, which is the essential message of this film. But if you were in a burning inferno and someone called to you with instructions on how to be saved from a horribly painful and terrifying death, you would consider this person a great savior with great news and that you've never heard and you would listen to them. This is the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus uh, Christ, the good news. The truth is that we're all in, in the burning and destructive inferno of our sins until we are washed by the pure and precious blood of Jesus. We're all covered with the ash of our sin until we are baptized into Christ and made new creations with new hearts and new minds, no longer darkened and depraved, by, but enlightened by the gospel and credited with the righteousness of Christ. There is no evidence of this glorious truth anywhere in the movie The Son of God. There is no evidence of God's authority, God's righteousness, or saving and powerful love that continually conforms us into the likeness of Jesus. This film does a great disservice to anyone who is infected by its anemic and sclerotic message of false hope in a false Christ. There you go. So, um, is the Son of God movie... You know, something that we should be teaching as small group curricula or material in our churches? Absolutely not. It's 
a false Jesus with a false gospel and a false message. And I'm glad that other people are paying attention to it. Now, I don't have um, update music for... Ronnie Floyd. Yeah, this is the first time we've uh, ever covered Ronnie Floyd here at uh, Fighting for the Faith, but we're going to switch gears real quick here before the break. And uh, Ronnie Floyd was recently um, nominated for the president, presidency of the Southern Baptist Convention by Albert Mueller. Why? I don't know. But here's, uh, recent, uh, v- here's recent audio from a sermon recently delivered by Ronnie Floyd where he preaches... Robert Morris's false doctrine that your money is cursed until you redeem it with the tithe. Here's um, maybe soon to be president of the Southern Baptist Convention, thanks to Albert Muller, uh, Ronnie Floyd. Here we go. But the first check you ought to write when you get paid is the first fruits check. The first auto draft that ought to be made is the first fruits auto draft. When you get paid bonuses, you get paid stock, when you get paid stock options, you should have already taken care of what's been to, given to you already, but now you got more added to the bucket, whatever level of your bucket. doesn't matter if your bucket's minimum wage, whether your bucket's Social Security, whether your bucket's just a little bit, or your bucket's a whole lot. We're all under the same principle of the bucket. And it's what we do with the bucket that we got is what God says is so important. And just think about it. Listen to me. When I'm willing to give him what's in the bucket, he's going to bless everything else in that bucket already. It's not a matter of me losing anything. When you give, you... Blessing by works here. ...lose anything. You gain everything. You say, I don't get that. I understand you don't get that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. I mean, this this still... Yeah, that's out of context here. You're not teaching what the Bible actually teaches regarding a Christian's responsibility. Uh, Christians are not under the Old Testament tithe. Bigger than that, Pastor Robert Morris, he says it's a real shame that Christians don't believe the importance of writing the first check. What's really a shame is that you actually are a Christian pastor and you weren't able to identify Robert Morris's uh, book and its teaching, the teaching in the book, for what it is. False teaching, false doctrine. Because God is the one we value first. God is the one we respect first. God is the one we honor first. God is the one we fear first. And he says, it's not the mortgage company we fear first. It's not the U.S. government we fear first. We should live our lives fearing God first. That's why he says it's important. He writes a book called Blessed, The Blessed Life. You never read The Blessed Life? You ought to get a copy of The Blessed Life. Yeah, go into the archives of Fighting for the Faith. In fact, what I'll do is I'll put a link up to this episode of Fighting for the Faith where I review Robert Morris teaching on this, uh, on his book, The Blessed Life, and demonstrate that it's false doctrine. He's not teaching the truth. Christians are not under the obligation to tithe uh, that is given under the Mosaic Covenant. We're under a different covenant. The greatest books on financial matters that I've ever read. Literally the worst, most heretical book I've ever read on financial matters. says these words. He says, when God blesses you, when you give the first fruits, being blessed means you're having supernatural power working for you. Listen carefully. He says, then by contrast, being cursed means having supernatural power working against you. That's so, right. If, yeah, if, if you don't tithe, if you don't redeem your, your money with the tithe... 
well, then your money's cursed and God's going to work against you. That's what Robert Morris teaches. And that is not what Christians are. It's not, Christians are not under the Mosaic Covenant law to tithe. Say what, what he says. When we honor the Lord with the first fruits, then I've got the supernatural power of God working for everything else in that bucket. Are you with me? But listen, if I don't want to honor God with the first fruit, then I got the supernatural power of God working against me in my buckets. Lies. Flat out blasphemous lies. The Bible doesn't teach this. But listen, if I don't want to honor God with the first fruit, then I got the supernatural power of God working against me in my buckets. Woo. Woo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, there you go. Um, so Albert Mueller nominated this guy to be the next president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I thought Albert Mueller was a better biblical scholar than that. What is going on there? Um, maybe it's politics, but that wouldn't justify it. Well, anyway, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. Well, we've got a uh, David Crank update and possibly a Joyce Meyer update. Depends on our time. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. The management of Marty Python's Flying Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed shofar CD. This is a real commercial. When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time 
end-time judgments about to be unleashed on planet Earth. Don't miss out on getting both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand-new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural. For a donation of $25, shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Call or write today. No, seriously, Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean midichlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your vision-casting leader who tells you your money's cursed until you redeem it with a tithe, because the Bible doesn't actually say that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. That's right. It's time for a David Crank update. got to hang on today. The uh, segues are a little bit sharp on today's program. Kill the music here. Now, what we're going to be listening to is a portion of a sermon recently posted at David Crank's Faith Church St. Louis website. They kind of do a weird thing, and that is that they chop up sermons into tiny little bits and pieces. And then when they post them, they're like little, you know, 
like 17 minute long segments and it's it's just the weirdest thing but so um but the name of the sermon is entitled keep speaking keep speaking and te- you know, technically this is based upon something to do with a passage from the book of acts but as you're about to hear when you take a look at the context of what's going on uh, in the book of Acts, then you realize that this sermon does something pretty bad, and that is, from the word go, it already jumps the tracks and, and ends up in a ditch. You know, you, you, listen, this is completely needless and totally avoidable. In fact, if uh, you're a pastor or you attend a church where you got a pastor, which is what you should be doing, um, then uh, the, the idea is this, is that as long as you preach the text in context, you have a far better, not guaranteed, but far better chance of actually rightly handling that text and preaching what that text is really about. Mm-hmm. It's true. So without any further ado, here is David Crank and his sermon entitled, Keep Speaking, and let's see what he does with this text. Acts chapter 18, verse 9 is going to be where we're going to start tonight. Acts 18, verse 9. And one night the Lord said to Paul, aren't you glad the Lord speaks? Now, we've got to stop. Okay, so out of the shoot, he's going to start, tonight we're going to start at Acts chapter 18, verse 9. Okay, um, the book of Acts is historical narrative, okay? It tells us of the establishing and growth of the Christian church from the time of the ascension of Christ into heaven, okay? Um, you know, and then, you know, it ends kind of abruptly, which means that, uh, you know, there, there's a lot going on there, uh, you know, a lot of loose ends that never get tied up, in, you know, at the end of the book. But Acts chapter 18 um, we're on a, a missionary journey with the Apostle Paul. And, okay, if, if a pastor is going to start out at Acts chapter 18, verse 9, then ideally you would hope that he that the sermon before the one that he's preaching uh, at the moment, you know, they work their way through chapter 17 all the way up to verse 8. You get what I'm saying? You know, this is generally how you read a story. I mean, have you heard of bookmarks? Yeah, there are these fascinating things, okay? You know, like in my library, I have books in, in lots of them and not enough shelf space, but that's a different story. But um, I have found that a good way to read a book, get this, is you start at the beginning and you keep reading sequentially until you reach the end of the book. And, you know, and should it be that, you know, you're not capable of reading a book in one setting, they have these things that are called bookmarks. They're amazing. And uh, they're like little firm pieces of cardboard, and some of them have designs on them or inspirational sayings. And I even have one that's made out of leather. You know, it, it's really fascinating. And what you do is when you are ready to put the book down, um, you put the bookmark into the book, and it and it lets you know where you left off. And so the next time you pick up the book, you, you you open the book to where the bookmark is, and then you keep reading. It's amazing, you know how this works. And um, you know, and you can use it inside of a Bible and everything. And so <laughs> and you're thinking, oh, Chris, you're just being a jerk. Yeah, I, I I I know it looks like that, but I'm trying to make a point, and that's this: is that why on earth would any pastor start a sermon? At Acts chapter 18, verse 9, unless his goal was to twist God's word and teach something that the passage doesn't teach. Hmm? Think about it, okay? 
this should be, this this should alert you. This should alert you that there's something terribly wrong here. So we're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, and we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 18. And I'm going to read past verse 9 a little bit, and uh, I'm going to begin at verse 1 to get the context of what's going on here so we can actually hear the story. And uh, and understand that that's the, the way you, you teach through a historical narrative is you teach through a historical narrative the way you would teach through a book. You begin at the beginning, you keep going until the end. That's what you do, and you hold your place you know, between episodes so that you can pick up where you left off, but that's not what he's doing. So Acts chapter 18, verse 1 says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked uh, with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Okay, so we, now we know where you know what's going on here. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that, that, the, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, you, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Titius, Justus, a worshiper of God. And his, his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed, and they were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. Okay, so Paul's in Corinth. He's preaching. The, you know, the word is bearing fruit. People are being brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. The church in Corinth is growing. And so the Lord appears to Paul in a vision, and here's what he says. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So basically, Jesus says, don't worry. You have nothing to fear regarding opposition. You keep preaching me. You don't be silent. I'm with you. No one's going to attack you. So Paul was given basically a a promise from Jesus that uh, while he was preaching in Corinth, he would be protected, and he was. And he stayed there for a year and six months teaching the Word of God. Great stuff. Um, And then uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 12 says this, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Okay, But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if if it were a matter of wrongdoing or uh, or vicious crime, or, uh, oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Uh-huh. Yeah, we, well, and Paul didn't have anything to worry about because Jesus basically said, keep on going. No one's going to attack you. And then, you know, they, they tried to you know, bring him up on charges and it completely flopped. So that's what this passage is about. Now you know it. Let's take a look then as we listen to uh, David Crank to see if he actually is going to rightly handle this text. We know what it's about now. Let's see if he can figure it out. In a vision. 
And look what he said. The Lord speaks in a vision and he says, have no fear. Well, pastor said a moment ago, but speak. Everybody shout, but speak. But speak. But speak. Have no fear, but speak and do not keep silent. I want to tell you tonight to do some talking. Do some more talking. Do some more speaking. Do some more declaring. Um, this passage doesn't have anything to do with us declaring or speaking or you know saying words of affirmation over ourselves. Uh, the Lord must have thought it was important to appear to the, the, the saint and say that to him. Say, hey, I got a vision for you. And the vision is not... This is not that. It's not a building. It's not a church. It's not a Cadillac. It's not a Hummer. And what I got to say to you is speak. Um, what are you talking about? I mean, his explanation of this passage makes you wonder, did you read the text? Did you even care to do your homework in your sermon prep? Speak what? Cadillac, the Hummer, the church, your family off drugs. Speak. And it said, fear not and don't keep silent. Everybody shout, don't keep silent. In other words, whatever you do, don't shut up. Keep talking. Keep saying. Um, What was he saying? Oh, he was telling people that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. And he was telling Jews and Greeks to be to repent and trust Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's what Jesus told him to not be silent about, but to keep preaching what he was preaching, which was Christ. David Crank, by ripping this verse out of context, makes it so that Paul apparently is was declaring affirmations over his life. Keep spraying. Now, if you're a note taker, write this down, that your... Words are your return address in the spirit. Your words are your return address in the spirit. What are you talking about? This passage doesn't teach anything about my words being the return address of the spirit. Paul was told by Jesus to keep speaking because what he was speaking was that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, We've been getting some really horrible mail at our house from some kind of pervert that sends incredible pornography to Nicole with real vindictive and vicious stuff. It's scary. But every time he sends it, there's no return address, so we can't return anything to the guy. We don't know where he lives. Well, we kind of know some more information now because cops have fingerprints and also the ability to detect who licks envelopes, but they don't think of all that stuff. But the point being is there's no return address. But in the spirit, it's that way. Your words are your return address in the spirit. It's like a boomerang. You send them out and they come back. The power of life and death are in the tongue. He said, whatever you do, that scripture said, whatever you do. Acts chapter 18, verse 9, has nothing to do with the power of life and death being in the tongue and our words speaking life. I mean... You're teaching the word of faith heresy from this text, and then you've ripped it out of context. Now you've added another verse out of context. Neither of these passages, when you put them in context, actually teach the heresy that you're teaching. Say it, spray it, speak it, and declare it, because your words frame your world, and they become your reality. I don't know where Jonathan is right now, but I want him to come to the stage. Come here, Jonathan, get him a mic. He and I were talking this afternoon, interesting conversation. And it started on the fact that my daughter told me over New Year's we were hanging out and Jonathan does the best job of pastoring these kids and they believe what he says. He's just awesome. And he plays the guitar and he plays the bass and he just makes me sick. He's got dark eyelashes and he doesn't have to wear 
makeup to see it. And I was telling him that my daughter said, Dad, my New Year's resolution and goal is this. I will meet Justin Bieber. I said, well, that's not a, a goal. That's not a New Year's resolution. That would be a desire or a wish. He said, oh, no, that is my resolution. That is my goal. I thought to myself, well, that, that would never happen. You can't, the guy fills stadiums, that's absolutely insane. It never, ever happened. Plus, after all, it couldn't happen because it's, it's a wish, not a resolution. You don't even know. She said it day after day. About three days into our little time off in Florida this last week, a pastor friend of mine came over to see us at the hotel we're staying at. And he came over and he said, hi, i got something kind of interesting. I said, what? He said, you know, I'm friends, of course, with Carl Lentz. And Carl Lentz is obviously friends of mine and... I know that Carl and those guys know uh, JB and said the next thing happens. It just so happened that we got invited to this concert to where we'll be on the front row with JB with backstage passes to meet JB. And we want to know if we take Ashton. And I thought, Lord God. So, okay, so apparently Acts chapter 18, verse 9, that says, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent is teaching us the power of our creative words to create the future. And the proof that this verse is really about that is the fact that David Crank's daughter uh, spoke her words that she was was going to meet Justin Bieber in uh, the year 2014. And wouldn't you know it, her words came to pass because Acts chapter 18 verse 9 says, Don't be silent, keep on speaking. So there you go. It's the word of faith heresy being taught to children. Uh, apparently, apparently you don't have to have the right lingo. You don't even have to understand what a goal is and a resolution. Apparently, when God knows the desires of your heart and you have no fear and you speak it, somebody ought to help me tonight, and you speak in faith, God begins to move people and bring favor into your life. And I'm telling you right now, don't tell me nothing. We're seeing a song. Let's believe it. Nothing is impossible. Nine-year-old girl. Yeah, I'm beginning to think the thing that is impossible is it's impossible for a word of faith heretic to rightly handle God's word and to actually preach the truth. Yeah, I think that's what this little soundbite segment that we reviewed demonstrates to us. Folks, that's called the word of faith heresy, and it's not based upon what God's word says. It's based upon twisting God's word to make it say something that it doesn't say. And if that little exercise with Acts chapter 18, verse 9 doesn't convince you, well, then maybe... This little segment from Joyce Meyer might. You got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. You got to spread joy up to the maximum, bring gloom. Down to the minimum, have faith or pandemonium liable to walk upon the scene. To illustrate my last remark, Jonah in the whale, Noah in the ark. What did they do just when everything looked so dark? Man, they said we better accent, chew it to positive limb. Might need the negative and latch on 
to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. There you go. That's Johnny Mercer. And uh, accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. What we're going to be listening to here from uh, Joyce Meyer is uh, a segment from a message on her uh, television program. Uh, entitled uh, Releasing God's Power, Releasing God's Power. And um, the best way I can describe it ahead of time is pay close attention to the transitions. You might get whiplash. Um, the chord changes are a little bit rapid. The uh, What we're going to get are verses ripped out of context, strung together quickly, and slapped together to create a theology that the Bible actually doesn't teach. Um, it's very similar to what we just heard David Crank doing. So without any further ado, here is uh, Joyce Meyer and the uh, Releasing God's Power. Here we go. Teach this weekend on how to release God's power in your life. How to release God's power in your life. Let me ask a question. Are any of you believing God to be weak? Is that a trick question? Which do you want? Do you want power or do you want weakness? Oh, yeah. Sign me up for weakness, please. I mean, what kind of question is this? Is power really available to us? And what kind of power is available to us? You know, we know that God is powerful, but can we actually share in his power in our lives? The Bible says... If the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, and it does, it will quicken your mortal body. Now, what does that mean? It'll make you strong. It will energize you. It will activate you. It will enable you. Now, listen to me. It will enable you to do whatever you need to do in life without murmuring, without complaining, Without murmuring, without complaining. Uh-oh. Without murmuring, without complaining. Yes, thank you, Graham, Grandma. Uh, appreciate that. Um, now, let's take a look at that passage, by the way. Uh, the, the passage she was referencing was Romans chapter 8. I think it's verse 11 that uh, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to get to. Yep, that's what we're looking at is verse 11. But you'll notice the technique again here. Um, she starts off with some lame questions, quotes a verse out of context, and quotes it from a passage where it, what's it, what it's referring to may be a little bit blurry because of the translation. The words are not so clear, but she's more than happy to clear it up for you and offer you this positive message that, uh, hey, listen, God's going to give you the power to do whatever it is you need to do without complaining and without murmuring. Yeah. Let's take a look. At, again, we'll apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis. They are context, context, and context. And to take a look at what's going on here, Romans chapter 8, to see if we can figure out what this passage is really saying. And the context oftentimes helps clear things up. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 is where we will begin. Here's what it says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is an important transition because in Romans chapter 7, you have the Apostle Paul talking about the doctrine of simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously justified and sinner at the same time. Uh, we are 
declared righteous before Christ. We're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. There's a new man inside of us. And at the same time, our sinful uh, flesh, our sinful Adam, is still alive and breathing. So the the state of a Christian is one that's actually kind of difficult. It feels like you're at war with yourself. That's what it feels like. And Paul asked the question, oh, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then the next words out of his mouth is, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now notice, this is in the immediate context here. Um, This isn't talking about receiving power to do whatever you need to do without complaining. That's not what it's talking about here. The dichotomy has to do with either living by the Spirit or having your mind set on the flesh. That's That's the dichotomy here. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Notice it's future tense. We'll also give life. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> so this is, you know, wh- wh- when will our mortal bodies get life in a future sense type of way? The resurrection. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Yep, so when you read this in context, it's not teaching anything about... um, and be you know being quickened in the spirit means you can do what you know God's going to give you the power to do whatever you need you need to release God's power into your life so that you can do things without complaining already Joyce Myers twisting God's word the dead giveaway that she was doing that was that she started with a verse out of context although it's possible to actually teach a passage correctly even if you jump into the middle of a text you got to be careful though as a careful exegete to make sure that you're not ripping it from its context and making it say something it doesn't. But she's not being a careful exegete here. She's being a good Bible twister. We continue. It will enable you and me to do whatever we need to do in life. How many of you have noticed that not every day turns out the way you'd like it to? And sometimes you might have a few months or even a whole year that doesn't turn out the way that you would like it to. And in those times, we have to hold firm and be steady and fight that good fight of faith and not let the enemy steal from us the hope and the vision 
that we have for our life because of not let the enemy steal our hope and vision for our life. Hmm. Where in the Bible does it give us these clear warnings that we need to be careful not to let the devil steal our vision for our life? I'm not familiar with those passages. What we have found as promises in the Word of God. And even in those difficult times, we can still treat people good. We can still have a smile on our face. We can still walk in peace. Not by our own power, but by the power of God. Not only is God powerful, but he wants to fill us, fill us, fill us, fill us with his power. And I want you to understand, not only here in this place tonight, but all around the world, that you do not have to live a weak, wimpy, pitiful, pathetic, barely get by life. Jesus. You know, what's funny is is that when Joel Osteen says that, it sounds a lot nicer. When she says that it's kind of got like a... Yeah, it's got a little bit of an edge to it. <laughs> Jill Osteen, when he says it, it sounds so positive. When she says it, it sounds, it's a little grating. Came that we might have and enjoy our life and have it in abundance to the full until it overflows. I cannot. Now, she was supposedly quoting John 10, 10. Let me back this up a little bit so that you can hear how she's ripping this verse out of context. Another verse out of context. Jesus came that we might have and enjoy our life and have it in abundance to the full until it overflows. I cannot... Now, boy, this is a mess. John 10.10, in order to understand what's going on in John 10.10, I'm not going to do this today because we're, we're running out of time for hour number one. But in order to properly understand John chapter 10, verse 10, you must begin at John chapter 9, verse 1. That's right. The fuller context of what's going on in John chapter 10, verse 10, tells us the story of a man who was born blind. The disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, hey, it's not, no one sinned that he was born blind. He was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's the reason. Um, so, you know, he, uh, Jesus, you know, makes mud puts it on his eyes and you know and tells him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash he goes and washes and he comes back seeing and now he hasn't seen Jesus and everyone re- recognizes that he's the beggar a miracle has happened and well of course it's happened on the sabbath and so they immediately the pharisees hold like a makeshift trial to find out what's going on and they didn't believe that the guy was actually born blind and so um, they called his parents in, and his parents said, yeah, he was born blind, and how he's able to uh, see, we have no idea. He's of age, ask him. So they bring him back. He you know, basically says, yeah, I, I was born blind, and they say, well, this man's a sinner. And he basically says, well, uh, you know, how is this possible? We know that God doesn't listen to a sinner, and we've never heard of a man being able to open the eyes of a blind person before. And so they ask him, you know, you know, you know how did he do this? And this guy says, well, he's a prophet. And, uh, and, you know, so the Pharisees freak out. They absolutely freak out. And they put him out of, uh, you know, put him out and they basically cast him out. And they, they jeer at him and, and yell at him. They say to him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. So they cast him out of their fellowship. And after the guy is cast out, Jesus seeks him out. Now, I've given you kind of a, you know, a quick summary of what's going on here. And I pick up at John chapter 9, verse 35. And uh, so Jesus finds him, and uh, here's what it says. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said to the man, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, 
And who is he, sir, so that I might believe in him? And Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Okay, now notice Jesus says, you have seen him. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped Jesus. That's right, he worships Jesus, which is a big no-no in a monotheistic religion like uh, Judaism because you're only supposed to worship the Lord. But see, the the answer to the question is, well, of course you're only supposed to answer, uh, worship the Lord. Who do you think Jesus is? Okay, so Jesus receives worship from this man. And then Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who may that, that and those who see may become blind now some of the pharisees heard him and heard these things and said to him are we also blind now knows the play on words with blindness here at this point and jesus said to them if you were blind you would have no guilt but now that you say we see your guilt remains yes he's going right after their theology because their theology said that man was born blind because of sin but, uh, you know, Jesus totally flips it and says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. He utterly decimates their theology. And then he goes on. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them and and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Notice in this particular case, who's the thief? The Pharisees, uh-huh. they, they climb in. These are self-appointed teachers. Not, they were not called by God. And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I came so that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Yeah. So quoting John 10, 10 out of context as if, oh, Jesus is all about you having a, a better life. Let me again back up you know, what Joyce Meyer said, because you just heard it in context from a good translation. And in hearing it from a good translation, you know what the passage says now and what it's really about. Let's see if, again, how well she handles the text. Here we go again. Jesus came that we might have and enjoy our life and have it in abundance to the full until it overflows. I That's not what John 10, 10 says. She added to it, too, and she subtracted stuff from it. Fascinating, isn't it? Technique of a Bible twister. Not promise you a problem-free life. I cannot promise you of faith, no matter how great your faith is, that does not insulate you from ever having problems. Matter of fact, sometimes when we make a bold stand to serve God, that's when the enemy really comes against us and tries to steal that faith. 
The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, that a wide door of opportunity had opened unto him, and with it came many, many adversaries. So I'm not going to tell you that you're going to have a problem-free life. But I will tell you that you already are more than a conqueror through Christ who loves you. Already are more than a conqueror. You don't have to try to be. You already are. All you need to do is learn how to believe that. Now that's four verses out of context strung together to create a a theology that the Bible doesn't actually teach. And all you have to do is put the verses back in context and you can see what's going wrong here. Yeah, kind of a mess, don't you think? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Uh, Brian Zahn's sermon about um, discovering your true self. Yeah, I don't know where the Bible teaches that. We'll see if it does. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Like the other messages that we've been listening to today, uh, this one goes off the rails immediately. Yeah, you got to watch out for those kind of sermons, you know, those kind of messages. You know, if they jump the track at the very, very start... You may not perceive that the, the the whole thing is false doctrine, you know, because you buy the major premise. Yeah, you got, you got to be paying attention from the very beginning. Anyway, let's do this right.
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Word of Life Church, St. Joseph, Missouri, Brian Zond presiding. All right, the name of the sermon that we will be reviewing by Brian Zahn is entitled, Your True Self. Here's the problem. Pull out a computerized Bible and start doing some searches. Let me do some true self. Um, yep, I don't see any passages in the Bible that discuss the doctrine of our true self. So what we're going to hear is, well, from the very beginning, something that is built off of a non-biblical doctrine. Where is he getting this from is probably the the good question. The answer is he's a mystic. He's into contemplative mysticism. This is a category that contemplative mystics discuss, not the Bible. So let me go ahead and kill the music here. And without any further ado, here is Brian Zahn in his message entitled, Your True Self. Here we go. A message this morning, and it's both part of Faith Life Weekend, and it also fits right in there with sacred, recovering the life we've lost, is entitled, Your True Self. We're going to be in the book of the Psalms, in the the Psalter. That's what the Psalms, it has its own name, the Psalter, I like that. We're going to be in the Psalter today, the book of the Psalms. And I'm going to begin with Psalm 25, verse... Yeah, it makes me wonder if we're going to be assaulted, uh, P-S-A-L-T, yeah, anyway, uh, by false doctrine here. Uh, <clears throat> we continue. This one is the opening text for the message, Your True Self. It's a psalm of David. David says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. So all weekend long, we are... Focusing on this business of tending and mending our sacred soul. You know, your soul is this great gift from God. You are a unique being. We are the dust of stars. We are the breath of God. We're the dust of stars? i got to hunt that one. Hang on. Dust of stars. I'm, I'm looking this up in my Bible, see... Yeah, no, no, nothing there. Um, so Psalm 25, verse 1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, and from that you get that we're the dust of stars. Um, like I said, I feel like you're assaulting, P-S-A-L, yeah, 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 from the Psalter. Um, you know, you're assaulting us with false doctrine here. Uh, we've got a problem. Uh, this Psalm 25, verse 1 doesn't teach us that we've got some kind of soul that we're supposed to mend, at least in the way you're talking about it, as if our soul is our true self. We continue. How did God form the human soul? He took the dust of the earth, the Adama, the soil, the humus, and he breathed into it, and man became a human. He formed us humankind from the human soil. He takes the, the, the dust of his good earth and he breathes into us his holy breath and we become this unique being. Neither angel nor animal, but this wonderful, beautiful synthesis of heaven and earth. So that even the, in the human soul, heaven and earth are come together. 
Our soul is this precious gift from God. And this morning what I want to do, I have a very, in some ways it's very simple. I have a very simple message. And what I want to tell you is that your true self, who you really are, is calm, content, wise, and unafraid. Uh, really? Um, that's weird. Um, have you ever heard of the doctrine of original sin? It's not something Lutherans made up. It's actually taught in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, for instance, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus says this about them, describing them before they were Christians. He says, And you, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hang on a second here. We, let's see, we, let me do a little cross-reference work here. Uh, maybe the book of Romans will help us uh, out here. Um, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. So what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Yeah, um, that's a little bit awkward there. Um, you know why that's um, awkward? It has to do with the fact that that's a cross-reference. You know what uh, the Apostle Paul is quoting here uh, regarding no one being righteous, no, not one? Yeah, he's quoting Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, and there's a cross-reference to that, and that's Psalm 53, uh, verses 1 through 3. Yeah, Paul's quoting the Psalter here, and the Psalter, in context, says not not that we have some true self that's calm and peaceful and stuff like that. It says that all of us have turned away from God and describes everything as a result of our sinful nature. We are born dead in trespasses and sins, at war with God, enemies of God, haters of God. Um, th- there's no hidden true self within us. I mean, what Brian Zahn is teaching here is a form of, or it's related to, the Pelagian heresy, uh, which basically says, "Listen, you, you're 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 really a good person. You just, you know, you've been, you know, you've been deceived by the world and stuff like that. If you had been raised by angels on an, on an island, uh, then you, all, you, nothing but your true goodness would have come out." And Scripture says, "No." You are born in the condition of being dead in trespasses and sins. And all, and we've inherited this from Adam and Eve, our first parents. So uh, what Brian Zahn is teaching here, uh, the Bible doesn't teach at all. This is flat-out heresy. That's who you are. Your true self is calm, content, wise, and unafraid. It's yeah, Again, what passage of the Bible says that about my true self? Only your false self that's agitated, grasping, foolish, and afraid. Where does the Bible talk about my false self again? Because it says I was born dead in trespasses and sins and by nature uh, um, an object of God's wrath. Afraid. That self that you may be quite, in fact, familiar with. How many of you know the self that can be agitated and grasping? Mine. 
You see, that's, that self develops very early on. And it, and without... Yeah, actually, um, our sinful nature, that, that, we get that when we're conceived. Proper soul care, that self that's, that says mine like a two-year-old, it just becomes more sophisticated in how it does it. But this self that you're familiar with that is agitated, that is grasping, that is foolish. How many of you have a track record of maybe a few foolish mistakes? Over the, okay. And is afraid. That is not the real you. You've had that experience. I'm not exonerating you from the responsibility of that. But what I'm telling you is those kind of actions of agitation and grasping and foolishness and fear do not proceed from who you really are. That's your false self, your shadows of, that's your... Now, if this was a biblical doctrine, don't you think that he'd be able to just point us to a biblical text that talks about our true self versus false self? But since there's no passage that says that, um, yeah, from the very beginning, this sermon goes off the rails. We continue. Gollum self for the Lord of the Rings people out there. That's what the ring of power has done to you, or at least your lust for it. I don't own a ring of power. We went off the rails when Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit. Well, when I tell you that the real you is calm, content, wise, and unafraid, uh, that may come as a surprise to you because you may have, in fact, had very little contact. Um, Yeah, it comes as a complete surprise to me because the uh, Bible doesn't actually teach this. With your true self. Now, one of the reasons that you haven't had as much contact as you should with the true self, and why this may seem a little bit incredible to you at first, when I tell you you were calm, content, wise, and unafraid, is that that true self very often gets buried under tons of rubble accumulated from the false self, who's always trying to assert dominance and take over. Now, did you learn this theology from the uh, that old folk song, Puff the Magic Dragon? I, I'm trying to figure out where you got this from because uh, this isn't actually taught anywhere in the Bible. And so one of the primary tasks of spiritual formation is to become your true self. What do I mean by spiritual formation? Well, the Apostle Paul, writing to the young Christians there in Galatia, says, oh, my, my dear children with whom I am in labor again until Christ is formed in you. Really? Yeah, that's nice that you can quote that verse, but you're, again, you're quoting it out of context, making it say something that it's not saying, that you're proof texting and engaging in what's called eisegesis. You're reading something into the text that's not there, and already this whole sermon is false because everything you've taught is false. The Bible doesn't teach that we have a true self that's good, wise, calm, and all this kind of stuff, and then a false self that's, you know, that, you know, is like Gollum, and that, you know, and it's been buried under the rubble, the true self's been buried under the rubble of the false self. This is, this is a myth. You're teaching fantasy theology. This is, you know, I mean, I mean, it's just pure fiction. The objective, the task, the goal, the telos of prayer and scripture and worship and all of these things is that Christ might be formed in us. In other words, that we might have a soul that is shaped in Christ likeness. But without these practices, that it, it seems that that agitated, grasping, foolish, afraid, false self takes over. This is why the primary purpose of prayer 
is not to get God to do what you think God ought to do, but to be properly formed. Without clear instruction, without being taught by the ancient wisdom, you will just simply fall. What ancient wisdom are you talking about? You're clearly not talking about biblical wisdom because what you're saying isn't taught in the Bible. All into prayer is simply trying to get God to do what you want done. Harness God to your agenda because we all have, you know, it, it's trying to use God to shape the world according to your will. Because we all want the world to be a certain way and the world has this awful tendency to fail to cooperate with us. And, and, and life isn't like we want it. The world isn't like we want it. If we could just do it ourselves, we'd make it happen. But we don't have that much power. And then we say, well, God, I, God, God's got that power. God can do anything. Well, God, would you? And, and so we end up turning prayer primarily. Yeah, I don't know anybody who has that as their primary motive for praying. Primarily into lobbying God. To act on our behalf. The problem with that is that if you spend all of your time praying out of your agitated, grasping, foolish, fearful self, it does you very little good. You remain an agitated, grasping, foolish, fearful soul. No, the primary purpose of prayer is to be properly formed. And that's what I teach in my prayer class. And we're finishing up one this Wednesday and then... Yeah, I'm glad you teach that in your prayer class, but my primary question is where does the Bible teach this? Because you haven't demonstrated at all in the sermon that you're even capable of rightly handling God's Word for a second. The next one is going to be a bit different. Instead of stretching over five weeks, it's over, over five days. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, March 31st through April 4th. I don't know if it's been scheduled for morning or evening or if that's up to me and I haven't made up my mind. I don't know. But it's going to be one or the other. It's going to be morning or evening, five in a row. That's the next one, March 31st through April 4th. So we're talking about the, the primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what you think God ought to do, but to be properly formed. And when I say you, I mean your soul. Because that's, that's you. By your soul, we mean, we mean you. Yeah, just because you say it like soul, you know, like that, doesn't make it any more, you know, true than it is. And it's not true at all what you're saying. You. Now, the soul of man is unique in a certain way in that it is designed to bear the image of its maker in a very unique way. God formed man of the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He became a living soul, a nephish. It's, it's, it's the Hebrew word for neck, indicating that it connects the cerebral with the corporal, but also it's this breathing thing, this living thing, the soul. And when God formed mankind, male and female, he formed them in his image, in his likeness. So that the task and vocation of the human soul is to carry the likeness of God through the earth. But something has gone wrong. You are, see, God, how many of you believe that God is calm? I'm so glad God, God isn't, I'm all nervous and agitated here. God is not agitated. He's calm. 
you're going to base your doctrine that God is calm based upon the fact that you asked a question of your audience and and because they thought that they believe God is calm, that means God is calm. I'm sure he is, um, but I don't you think the person to go to is God and what he's revealed about himself in his word rather than polling the audience to try to figure out what, what the truth is about God? God is content. He's not grasping. God is wise, he's not foolish, and God is not afraid, he's unafraid. And if that's what God is like, how many of you would agree? Yes, God is calm, content, wise, and unafraid. We're, we're to bear that image. That, that is, that is you're, you are designed to be that way. Oh, so we better get busy bearing that image because that's how God is. Ah, so we we conduct a poll of the audience to ask them what they think God is like, and then throw in there because we're made in the image of God, we got to start bearing that image. Mm -hmm. And you keep overlooking the fact that the clear passages of Scripture make it clear that we're born dead in trespasses and sins. In the Psalters, David says, "In sin did my mother conceive me." um, That none of us is righteous, no, not one. And see, that's the problem: our sinful nature is corrupted. Yeah, you know, how God made us originally is is broken. It's busted because of our sin. And so just telling us, well, we need to be more like God and bear his image doesn't really help us. And then creating this fictional story about a true self versus false self that isn't anywhere taught in Scripture doesn't help either. Wait, that is your true nature. Your true self, your true soul is calm, content, wise, and unafraid. Like, you know, different animals have different characteristics that are according to their nature. That when they do certain things, that, that's, that's what... So when cheetahs are fast, that's just cheetahs being cheetahs. They're just... That's their nature, to be fast. And monkeys, are their nature is to be clever. And oxen, their nature is to be strong. And uh, I don't know what else. Lions, their nature is to be fierce. And dogs, their nature is to be loyal. And snakes, eh, I don't like snakes. Their nature is to bug me. To be crafty, we'll put it that way. They're crafty. That's what the Bible says. More crafty than any of the beasts of the field. The human being... Well, you sure are being snake-like in this sermon, don't you think? The human nature is to be calm, content, wise, and unafraid. So you say, well, that's a wonderful theory you've come up with, Pastor Brian. But obviously, as we just look at the human species in its social interactions over history, we don't get the initial impression, well, there's a species that's calm, content, wise, and unafraid. In fact, we say, those people, that, that creature called human is generally agitated, Grasping, nobody ever has to seem to have enough. Even the ones that have billions don't have enough. They are foolish. I mean, their whole history is a series of mistakes. My goodness, they are a fearful bunch of... Yeah, calling uh, the uh, human history uh, you know, a series of mistakes is to kind of miss the whole point. It's just chock full of sin and rebellion. Preachers. So what's gone wrong? Well, one answer is sin is... 
entered into the world and it yeah let's delve into that one way deeper because this true self false self thing seems to be well it seems to me that you've uh, redefined sin in such a way that you're not dealing with reality properly it has marred and distorted but not erased the image of god from the human soul and by the way i want to say this i've been stressing this of late but i do want to say this more people Most people have been far more distorted by systemic sin than by personal sin. Personal sin has its role. And, you know, I'm not not exonerating you except to say, are you going to open up a Bible and actually tell us what God's Word says, or are you just going to continue to spin out your own theories and ideas? That I think we, the church has been very weak for a long time on acknowledging the fact that one of the, primary forces of distortion upon the human soul is not just individual personal sin, but the whole systems of sin. Now, what do I mean by system? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense because systems of sin are set up by individual sinners and perpetrated and continued on by individual sinners. It doesn't make any sense. Systems of sin. I mean the world, (laughs) the world, Babylon, primarily the politics of power, the economics of greed, and the religion of shame and blame. Those things together compose the world system, the broken, fallen, sinful Babylon that is the world, which is essentially the systems of politics of power, economics of greed, and religion of shame and blame. And that distorts human beings. So what do we do about it? No, actually, human beings are distorted. That's why that system exists, because it was created by distorted human beings. Oy, oy, oy. Well, we're going to have to do what David did. We're going to have to lift our soul up to God. We're, we're going to present our... Psalm 25, verse 1 doesn't present the solution to the problem of our inherent sinful natures. Our soul before God to recover the proper image. Because the human soul in its right form is to bear the image of God. Say amen to that. And so what has happened is our, our distance from God. We, we've lost touch of who we are and how we're to be. And we end up agitated, grasping. You've lost touch of what the Bible actually says. And you're not actually teaching it. Foolish and afraid. And so what we need to do is bring our soul back to its maker. Because the soul is of the nature to bear the image of its creator. So we need to lift our soul up to God and to recover. This is some kind of weird Gnostic teaching. Like, you know, the soul is good, matter is bad kind of thing. There's some hints of Gnosticism in here. Cover that image. We lift up our soul that we might escape the false self, and find our true self, that self that is calm, content. And Psalm 25, verse 1, doesn't say any of this. Wise and unafraid. And I want to give you something very tangible, doable. Even though I don't like the word in church, I'll say practical. I don't like that word, but, you know, okay, I'm going to use it. I'm going to give you something practical. Praying the Psalms. One of the purposes of this... Now, this is the first thing I agree with in this sermon. Uh, You know, 
Unfortunately, the source here is bad, but the advice is pretty good. Pray the Psalms. The Psalter is a prayer book. I completely agree with him that praying the Psalms is a good thing. In fact, if you want your prayer life to be radically rocked, start praying the Psalms. It is a great way to pray. That being said, um, everything else I completely disagree with because he's completely twisted God's word and created some kind of fairy tale fiction story about some true self thing that's supposedly in there somewhere that's completely good and just somehow affected negatively by the bad self, which is, again, some weird, you know, this is a bizarre kind of semi-gnostic teaching that we're getting here. Psalms is to present and lift up our soul to God to discover our true Amajo Dei, image of God's self. We lift up our soul to God in prayer that we might become ourselves. Uh, yeah, don't pray the Psalms for that reason, because that reason is not a good reason. It's not a true reason. It's bad theology, bad doctrine, and just all around you know, false expectation here created by a false teacher. If I can be just a bit autobiographical for a moment. I feel like I was sort of my true self uh, until I was, I don't know, probably till they sent me off to school. <laughs> and I don't think I really began to recover my true self until in my 40s. Mm, this is what you felt. And you're basing your theology on your feelings. Okay. And by the way, that is not an unusual story. You say, well, you, you, what were you, were you fake all that other time? Well, I wasn't fake. That wasn't, that's not the point. Is I really had not been able to, I, I lived far too much out of my false self that is agitated, grasping, foolish, and afraid. And things began to happen in my 40s that helped me to begin to find my true self. That was there all along, but had been buried under a lot of rubble. You say, well, that's kind of sad that, I don't know if it is or not. It's what it is. The sadder story, and the one which is actually far more common, is people who were their true selves until they were five years old, and that was it. And they live out their whole life and are buried as a false self. Let that not be the case among us. Amen? So I want to do is I want to show you how to pray the Psalms for this purpose, for the purpose of finding and being the self that is calm. Yeah, again, pray the Psalms, but don't pray them for this purpose. Calm, content, wise, and unafraid. Because the Psalms themselves are meditations that bend the soul toward calm, toward contentment, toward wisdom toward courage. It's a misnomer to think that the Psalter is just a collection of praise songs like hallelujah, glory to God, praise the Lord, hallelujah, glory to God. That's Psalm 150. I mean, that, that thing is there. But the Psalms are much more than that. At least half of them are, you know, meditations and laments and, and this presenting of the soul before God that we might recover the proper image. So I want you to do this. I want you in a time of prayer, in the time of prayer, if you take my prayer class, there's this, we have this track that leads us into the presence of God. And then we are led then from the presence of God back into the active life. But in the middle, there's this thing I call contemplation. And during the time of contemplation, oh yeah, he's a contemplative mystic. That's why he's talking about this true self, false self dichotomy. 
He didn't learn this from the God's Word. He learned this from the mystics, the contemplatives. I want you to begin to say, I am calm. I am content. Mm, so start saying positive affirmations in your life. Rather than, I am healthy, I am wealthy, I am wise. Oh, no, you say, I am calm. I am content. Serenity now. I am wise. I am unafraid. And then I'm going to give you, in just a moment, we're, I'm going to show you how to do this. I'm going to give you a meditation from the Psalms that undergird and support each of those four confessions. Oh, no. Man, this is terrible, man. I mean, again, I don't have... It's a good idea to pray the Psalms, but pray them like you would a, a, any other prayer. It's a prayer. It's a good prayer book. But don't pray them with the idea that you need to get into some contemplative, altered state of consciousness and start saying, serenity now, serenity now. That's not what the Psalms are about. Uh, this guy is completely off the rails. Now, here's what can happen. If over a period of time... Now, see, here's one of the problems with prayer, trying to sell prayer to Americans. It's a tough sell because real formative prayer is without immediate feedback or sense of achievement. We like, you know, I, I, I do something and I get instant, almost instant gratification, instant result. True formative prayer does not give instant gratification. So you, so it's, just think of it as a rebellious thing you're going to do. I'm going to be, I'm not going to be shaped by my culture. I'm going to do something subversive. I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray well. And I'm going to pray in such a way that I don't expect an immediate payback. I'm going to, I'm looking for results six months down the road. See, that's a tough sell. But how many of you are planning to be here Six months from now. I mean, you still you, you don't plan dying in the next six months. You, you, you plan on being alive six months from now. All right, then we might as well get your soul in a better place six months from now. And you're going to do that by learning how to pray well. And besides that, if you die within the next six months, when you go to heaven, the first thing they're probably going to do is put you in a prayer class. So you might as well learn this now. That in this prayer time, you're going you're gonna to pray... It's not. It's a meditation. It's not a request. It's a meditation. I am calm. I am content. Um, what you're saying has nothing to do with praying the Psalms. I am wise. I am unafraid. And here's what I know from experience can happen. It, does, that, it doesn't happen the first week that you do this. So he, he knows this from where? He doesn't know this from the Bible. Mm-mm. He knows this from personal experience. Oh, well, I mean, that's always the indicator of sound doctrine, isn't it? No, it's not. But after a while, when you have been formed in that, then when you're not in prayer, you're at work. It's a Tuesday afternoon and a situation comes up where ordinarily the false self would completely take over and you'd be agitated, you'd be grasping, you'd make foolish decisions and be completely freaked out, you can simply say, I mean, you don't even have to say it out loud. You can just be in that meeting there. Let's say it's happening in some meeting at work and you can just say to yourself, I'm calm. Oh, brother. Yeah, notice it's that statement. I am. I am. I am. 
Let's take a look at Psalm 25. And let's just read it. And let's look at what it says if we were to read it as a prayer. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Teach me. For you are the God of my salvation, and for you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, and according to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged, and bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all of my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. That's a great prayer. Now notice here, it's petitioning God. It's not saying, I am wise, I am calm. Okay, now notice, what is Brian Zahn teaching here? So he's taught that we've got some true self that is supposedly, you know, just already calm and peaceful and stuff like that. And then there's this false self, this false self that really isn't the true self. It's a false self that is all stressed out and grasping and greedy and stuff like that. And rather than the solution being repentance and the forgiveness of sins, which Psalm 25 so clearly teaches and teaches you to pray for, um, rather than doing that, oh, you just ignore the false self and just instead strengthen the true self and say, I am wise, I am calm, I am this, I am that. Is that repentance? Is that the forgiveness of sins? Nope. It's a false gospel that he's preaching based upon a false diagnosis about our condition. Mm -hmm. We continue. Content, wise, unafraid, and, and it just activates that true self. It empowers that true self. And the false golem shadow self that ordinarily would take over in that moment is completely pushed back. Oh, that's a good thing. Hogwash. This is just fantasy. This is not theology. This is nonsense. Okay? Where in the Bible does it say that if you say of yourself, I am wise, I am calm, I am whatever, that that will activate the true self? There's no biblical passage that teaches this. This is all smoke and nonsense. But it is the fruit of diligent labor in formative prayer. 
So I'm going to give you the meditation. I'm calm, content, wise, unafraid. And then the supporting psalm. Now, in fact, there are I, I just sort of chose them at random. Because for each one of those meditations on being content or calm or wise or unafraid, there are many psalms, many lines and verses from the psalms that undergird all of that. So I've just chosen them somewhat at random. And they all happen to be from David. That was sort of the symmetry I wanted. I had psalms of David. So begin with Psalm 131, verse 2. This undergirds the confession, I am calm. Psalm 131, verse 2. David writes, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned... Yeah, you, you ripped that out of context. Psalm 131 has only three verses. So why did you start at verse 2? It's not like you, you're, you're up against the clock and you don't have time to read verse 1. Yeah, this is a Bible-twisting technique. Psalm 31 does not teach this thing, oh, and say to yourself, I am calm. No, no, no. If you're going to pray Psalm 131, you have plenty of time to pray all of it. And here's what it says. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. And like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That's right. Hope in the Lord. Not hope in yourself. Not hope in your calmed spirit or anything like that. Let's see if he even gets to verse 3. I mean, let's, let's see what happens. Child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, this is a line. This is a meditation from the Psalms. Uh, no, you've ripped that psalm apart. Again, it's only three verses long. Why did you not give us verse 1 and 3? Oh, I know. The reason you didn't give us verse 1 and 3 is because they're not teaching the false theology that you are teaching. So you just want us to focus. We're going to pray the Psalms by praying a single verse from a psalm. No, if you're going to pray a psalm, if you're going to pray the Psalter, pray a whole psalm from beginning to end. That evokes an image. And you see a mother, a tender mother, with a young child, maybe two years old, in her arms. And the child now is not agitated. The child isn't crying. The child is utterly content, perhaps sleeping. This child does not have a care in the world. This child is completely content because in this moment, it is in the loving safe embrace of its mother. That is the meditation that David gives us of the picture of our soul in God. And this is one of the passages where, in Scripture, where God is, is viewed as mother. Far more frequent are the, are the father images. But you understand that these are metaphors. God does not possess gender. That isn't, the, that isn't a part. Well, remember this. God created man or humankind, Adam, humankind, in his image, male and female. I should at least get an amen from the women on this one. <laughs> that we don't want to suggest that men are more like God's image than women. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay, now Perry's, now Perry's. You know. Yeah, but it's important to note this, that never in Scripture is God actually openly referred to as mother. Never. God is always father. And Jesus, he's circumcised. You figure out the plumbing on that one. 
Um, so there, there is this idea that this is, you know, when it comes to God, it's a lot more than just metaphor here. A lot more than that. Now, that's not to say that women are not created in the image of God. They are. Okay, women and men are both created in the image of God. But what's happening here is you're you're actually engaging in some obfuscation to teach a, an interestingly bizarre theology. And just because David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me, he is not saying that he that God is his mother. You're you're actually over cranking this text and, and you know, making it say something it's not actually saying. No. Shouting amen. Okay. So, well, I say this because sometimes uh, a, an image of God as father becomes problematic for people that have perhaps suffered at the hands of an abusive father. And this becomes a hurdle for them to get around. So if it helps you from time to time to embrace one of these scriptural metaphors as God as mother, that's completely legitimate and helpful. Here's one of them. Where God is as a mother to our soul and just cradling and holding gently our soul. And our soul is in this deep state of contentment. Uh huh. Yeah, spoken like a true contemplative mystic. This is seductively bad theology and this is a misuse of this passage. The agitated crybaby self is not you. So dismiss it. Let that shadow self evaporate. And by the way, the agitated false self is the source of almost all of your anger. Mm-hmm, yeah. Again, there isn't a single biblical passage that talks about the dichotomy between the true self and false self. Isn't that weird? Your, your, your anger, nearly all of your anger... And it's strange because the people want to def- they want to justify their just their their rage and their anger, and they they always do this to me. Well, what about Jesus in the in the temple with the whip? Well, you ain't Jesus. And Jesus didn't teach his disciples. Now y'all get whips, and let's go from synagogue to synagogue and whip people. I mean, yes, there's this prophetic protest against the corruption and all of that. I get that. This instance here that, you know, prophesies the demise of the temple and the creation of a new temple. But don't use that as your model for going through life. Because you're not Jesus. (laughs) And when Peter got mad, it didn't work out so well for him. Okay. So... Yeah, it's it's strange that uh, Scripture would tell us that, and, and do not sin in your anger. It doesn't say that your anger is sin. Yep, that's what Scripture says. And that would, again, contradict this false dichotomy set up by Zond here. Weird, huh? Anger almost always comes from your false agitated self. So you're in prayer and you're saying, well, we're going to do this in a moment, but I'm giving you the teaching first. I am calm. I have calmed my soul like a small child with its mother. Amen? No, because if you're going to pray the psalm, you've got to pray that whole thing. And you've skipped some important stuff in that little three-verse psalm. I am content. Well, how about this one? Another psalm of David, the most... What's David's greatest hit? His greatest hit, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you don't want, what are you? Content. Now, again, we also have a strong image being evoked in this psalm. The first one is the image of a mother and child. The second one is a shepherd and a lamb, where the lamb is dependent upon the shepherd 
who cares for the lamb, and the lamb is thus content. It's in this area of grasping and content that we are most, now listen to me carefully, malformed by systemic sin. You and I live a couple things. First, yeah, again, where does the Bible talk about us being malformed by systemic sin? And by that he means not inside of you, you know, the, the sin of the world kind of thing. First of all, we live in an advertisement culture where every year billions and billions of dollars are spent by huge corporations employing people that are far smarter than we are to manipulate us to want things that we never knew we wanted. These are very, very intelligent people who know what they're doing and they know how to manipulate us. Furthermore, the whole basic economic system is built upon mandated consumption. Don't you think the entire economic system is a result of our collective sinful natures? Mm -hmm. That if suddenly in America everybody took my prayer class and got content, (laughs) reached a state of contemplative contentment, it would wreck the entire economy. Because the whole system is based on mandated consumption. So what's the solution to the big system? I don't know about that. I'm, that's not what I'm going to address. I'm going to address that you do not have to be subject to the dictates of the principalities and powers that tell you that you cannot be content until you have the latest model, the latest version, until you have more of this or that, until you've gone out and maxed out three credit cards so that you can have all this stuff. But if it's just you versus this huge Leviathan, you're going to lose. That's why you need Scripture. You need God supporting you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I am content. And by the way, when I'm talking about contentment, I'm not... Yeah, sitting there and saying, I am content is completely different than actually praying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I mean, to pray that is is actually something completely different than making an affirmation about yourself. Because when you pray that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, you're not making an affirmation about yourself. The focus is not on you, it's on Christ. Uh, Let me read this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still waters. He restoreth my soul and leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies, and thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now that is a prayer. It's a great prayer. Just simply saying, I am content, is not the same thing as confessing the Lord to be your shepherd and praying that. Very different things altogether. Contemplative mystics rip God's word apart and insert a foreign theology that is not there. It's more akin to Buddhism than it is to Christianity. Not just or even necessarily primarily talking about financial matters, although it includes that. I'm also talking about how to live 
in the moment without trying to control or change it. Um, we see, that's, that's the ring of power, by the way, that corrupts Smeagol into Gollum. We all have this mistaken notion that the way to live is to have enough control, to be in charge enough that we can, you know, make the world the way we want it. Yeah, see, the truth is, is that we're all born Smeagols. That's the truth. But the world has this awful habit of not cooperating. And it doesn't take very long at all for you to be thrown into a situation where you are not in control. How many of you know this? That I'm not in control here. And what kicks in? Two things kick in. Fight, flight. Fight, flight. We either fight it or we run away from it. Jesus is the one who shows us there is a third way and it's the way of trust. To trust God. You see this played out in the passion, when things are spinning out of control, Jesus is being arrested. He's not in control. He's being brought, but he's in. He's he's bound and brought before Caiaphas. He's not in control. He's brought to Pilate. He's not in control. He's being nailed to a cross. He's not in control. Peter's reaction is fight or flight. Jesus is trust. Remember when in the garden they come to arrest Jesus. Peter first becomes angry, and he fights. And he strikes with the sword. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes him. Two hours later, Peter now is still not in control. The situation is out of control. And now he's not angry. He's afraid. And so he reverts to flight, as it were. And he denies Jesus. I don't even know him. I wasn't there. I don't know him. He's running away from it. So with fight, he's being rebuked by Jesus. By flight, he's denying Jesus. Fight, flight, neither one are the Jesus way. What does Jesus do? through the entire episode that he is out of control, called his passion, because passion is just an old word for suffering. Everybody say suffering. Suffering is basically this. When you're not in control. The feeling that you have when you are not in control, that's what we call suffering. Instead of fighting or... What? The feeling you have when you're not in control is suffering? Oh, I think it's a lot more than that fleeing, Jesus trusted. That's why he gets largely silent. He says a few things, but not much. He becomes quiet. And then it reaches this great crescendo on the cross when he said, Father, into your hands. I commit all this. I commit my spirit into your hands. And he dies. And he's buried. And he's raised on the third day. So I'm content means much more than, you know, I'm satisfied with my income. It means when I'm out of, when things are out of my control and I'm experiencing the the phenomenon called suffering because things are out of my control, instead of fight or flight, I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust. I am wise. Psalm 51, 6 undergirds this confession. Psalm 51, 6, I am wise. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. As we learn to lift up our soul to God in prayer, God deposits wisdom in us. David says that God gives him wisdom in the secret heart, but don't confuse it. This isn't knowledge in the mind. 
This isn't bits of information in the mind. Knowledge is good, but this isn't what we're talking about. This is wisdom. It has more to do with peace and patience than information and knowledge. If you will learn how to allow peace and patience to govern your decision-making, you will discover that your past proclivity for foolish decisions emanated almost entirely from your false self. And one of the primary characteristics of the false self is that it is impatient. If somebody says, I need wisdom, I can give them counsel. I can almost always say this is wisdom. Yeah, one of the things indicative of false theology is that it's not actually based on any clear passages. Just saying, you know. Make the patient decision. Whatever patience would counsel, go with that, because patience seems to be the very heart of wisdom. Many, if not most, of your foolish decisions from the past, if you will take a moment and think about them, you will see that they primarily, the foolishness probably stems, primarily stems from being impatient. You couldn't wait. It is the false shadow golem self who says, we can't wait, precious. We must have it now. The true self says, I can wait. I can wait. Finally. Yeah, what if you're not supposed to have it? What if you're actually coveting something? Rather than saying, I should wait, the, uh, the true self. Uh-huh, right, yeah, sorry. You should say, it's sinful for me to desire it. I repent because I'm coveting my neighbor's stuff. How about that? Lord, forgive me for coveting. I am unafraid. Psalm 27, verse 3. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Again, you're trying to teach him to pray the Psalms. Why are you ripping the Psalms apart? If you're going to pray the prayer of the Psalms, pray the whole thing. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, 
O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord and in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. It's a great prayer. But why is it that Brian Zahn is supposedly teaching people to pray the Psalms by not actually praying the Psalms? Weird, isn't it? We continue. Yet again, David is evoking an image. You might call it a metaphor. You know, trouble coming as an army encamped against me. Trouble coming as war raging against me. Although for David, these things actually happened. You know. David is one of the few people that can say, I know what it's like to have a whole army come out against you. Remember when King Saul was after David and sent the whole army after poor old David. And so David can draw upon that experience, give it to us as a metaphor, but for him it's a real experience Though an army encamp against me, still my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, still I shall be confident. I am unafraid. So this is a meditation from the Psalms that grounds your soul in courage. And by the way, if you want to find other verses that support that in the Psalms, here's what you do. You just take your Bible in the Psalms and just open and do that. Because almost every other verse in the Psalms, in one way or another, is a meditation of, don't be afraid, trust God. Don't be afraid, trust in God. By the way, every time an angel comes, what is an angel? An angel is a messenger from heaven. Every time an angel in the Bible comes to some human being, what does the angel always say first? Don't be afraid. That's heaven's Message to earth. Don't be afraid. That's what heaven has to say to mankind. Don't be afraid. It's why Jesus says it. Don't be afraid. Well, that reminds me. What are the first words that we have recorded in Scripture from human lips? I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. So I hid myself. I think ultimately the primary characteristic of the false shadow self is that it is afraid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, as opposed to the true self. Again, di- false dichotomy is nowhere taught in Scripture. The false self that he's describing is our sinful nature. And that is what we've re- inherited from Adam and Eve, corrupted and blown out and destroyed by sin. Yeah, the true self thing doesn't exist. At all. And the presence of fear may look like other things, but we may call it, you know, worry or anxiety or even anger, depression. What's wrong with us is that we are so afraid. And it's why heaven has this to say don't be afraid. As we lift up our soul to God in the Psalms, we learn that we don't have to be afraid. I am calm, I'm content, I'm wise, I'm unafraid. We have a few minutes left before we come to the table of the Lord. Let's do this together as a kind of prayer exercise so I can maybe introduce you to how this works. Uh, I can hardly wait. I do this every day of my life. I'm sure you do. 
and it's not to your benefit. I'm just going to show you what I do. I do it basically like this. I'm going to have, I'm going to have Eric come up here and sit at the piano and play a little bit. And so we've been on a track of prayer, let's say. Going through that track of prayer. We've come into the presence of the Lord. We're now there in the presence of Jesus. Uh, yeah, this is contemplative mysticism. This isn't prayer. So just breathe a little bit. Uh-huh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I do that all the time. I don't even normally have to think about it. In fact, if I stop breathing, I'd probably fall over dead. You're a nephish. You're a breathing thing. Uh, yeah, this is not prayer. This is contemplative mysticism. Very different. You that are... The dust of stars and the breath of God. Just breathe. I'm the dust of stars. I'm stardust. Okay. And I do this. I am calm. That's not a prayer. That's an affirmation. I am content. That's great. I'm glad you're that. But that's, again, not a prayer. And it's not the same thing as praying the Psalms. I am wise. You want to know what happens when I pray? Oftentimes it goes something like this. I kneel beside my bed. And I fold my hands. And I close my eyes. And I say this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now that's a prayer. You know who taught us to pray that way? Jesus. God in human flesh. The disciples came to him and asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, when you pray, say. And then he said that. That's a prayer. I trust Jesus. I don't trust Brian Zond because Brian Zond, his voice is weird. It doesn't sound like the shepherd at all. This idea of the true self, false self thing, very foreign. I don't, I don't hear that in Scripture. This isn't the voice of Jesus that I'm hearing, nor the voice of God's Word speaking. This is the voice of a hireling, somebody who's jumped the fence, who shouldn't be doing the things that he's doing. He's not teaching us to truly pray the way God wants us to pray. In fact, his prayers aren't even prayers. They're self-centered affirmations. I am unafraid. I am calm. I have calmed my soul like a weaned child with its mother. I am content. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I am wise. The Lord teaches me truth in the secret heart. Oh, yeah, the reason why he has you pray this way, because he believes that you have a true self in you, that when you do this, you activate your true self. Again, the Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. I am unafraid. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, still I shall be confident. 
I am calm. I am content. I am wise. I am unafraid. And you're deceived. That's what I do. I do that every day. Yeah, that, that's great. I'm glad you cobbled together your own aff- affirmation that you think is a prayer, but it's not. Just about that long. Let's try it together. You repeat after me. I am calm. Done, done, done. Whew. There you go. False teaching with a false prayer to go along with it. This is not the voice of Jesus, and this is not how Jesus taught us to pray. This is something completely different, built upon a false theology, a false theology smuggled into the church that cannot be verified from God's Word because God's Word doesn't teach any of this. That's the difference between life and death, darkness and light, truth and error. That's what we're talking about here. It's that serious. And yet there's so many people, like Brian Zahn, who are practicing this contemplative stuff, thinking that it's, oh, it's a deeper, more powerful way to pray. No, it's a deeper, more powerful delusion and a deception sent by the devil based upon a false theology that hidden inside of you is something really good. And there isn't. What's missing is repentance, the forgiveness of sins, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and the new man that's brought forth through regeneration. Yeah, this is a false theology, seductive as all get out. Sounds so spiritual and pious. And oh, and the piano music just makes it even much more, you know, seductive as far as the experience of it. But none of it is true. What do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>